70% of our citizens are either immigrants or they're the children or grandchildren of immigrants. So you have this melting pot of a society and it's reflected in our culture. This whole nation is created out of fighting for freedom, fighting for a place to call home. For me, I just have to ask God for extra grace to remember there's a reason that people are the way that they are and that they need to be freed with the love of Yeshua. Welcome back to another episode of A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Ezra Benjamin. And I'm Carly Berna. And we are, respectively, a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines you see in the news through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. And today we're going to talk about immigration to Israel, a topic some of you listening may be very familiar with. Some of you may have extended family who have become citizens of the state of Israel, and others may have no idea what we're talking about and may be asking, why would you ever want to move to the Middle East when you have a perfectly good condo in an upscale part of Chicago or wherever you may be? But we're going to dive into that topic today. Specifically, Carly, people from, give or take a, a, a chunk of a generation, our generation, millennials who made Aliyah, who immigrated to Israel. And joining us for this exciting topic are Michael and Vanessa Mistretta, who lead FIRM, which stands for Fellowship of Israel-Related Ministries in downtown Jerusalem in Israel. And they themselves uh, immigrated to Israel and became citizens a few years back. They're going to tell us their story today. But before we dive into that, I want to let you know that you, our listening audience, have an exciting opportunity to stand with and in Jesus' name to meet the practical needs of struggling Jewish communities in parts of the world you may never even have known Jewish communities exist. Places like Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, Northeast India, scattered throughout South America, and we could go on and on. But we want you to check out the details about that opportunity. It's all on our website, a Jew and a Gentile Discuss.org. And uh, in, in, as a thank you for your participation and for you standing with these communities with us, we want to get you some delicious, delicious, I'm drinking some right now, fresh roasted here in our hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, Ethiopian coffee. In fact, we want to give you the opportunity to enter into a drawing to win some free coffee from our very own coffee company, Lost Tribes Coffee. More details on that at the bottom of this episode, so please stick with us until then. But without further ado, Michael and Vanessa, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us, guys. Yes, thank you. Well, let's dive right in and discuss. Guys, tell us, give us your elevator speech about your background. Pre-Israel, where did you grow up? Where are you from? What's your deal? So I grew up in Canada and as far as I knew, did not have a Jewish background. Grew up in the church, uh, loved the Lord, wanted to make a difference with my life, thought I was going to go into business and send money to the missions field. Had no concept of Israel, never thought I'd end up in Israel, never wanted to go to Israel. So that's where, that's my starting point. Yeah, and I grew up very different, a little confused because my mom grew up Catholic, my dad grew up Jewish, not a believer in, in Jesus. And he accepted the Lord when, he, when I was seven years old. And so then we walked into Messianic Judaism, but there's a lot of confusion in regard to, am I a Christian? Am I Jewish? What am I? I I have no idea what to actually walk out, how to explain this. It was very different. But I was born and raised in Florida, and home is still that. That's you know, that's still the the core of where my family is, and everybody's still there. And um, yeah. So, Michael, you said that you never wanted to live in Israel, but Vanessa, did you want to live in Israel at some point in your journey? Never. I never did. I even got invited to study abroad in Israel. 
And uh, while I was in college, and my answer to that was, no, thank you. I am really happy in Florida. I'm good to go. And it really took God changing my heart sometimes starting to wake up with this longing to go out of nowhere. And, you know, the next semester I ended up landing in Tel Aviv and there for a, a study abroad for a semester. And it was just completely out of the blue. And then I ended that semester after absolutely hating my time. <laughs> Six months later, everybody said, oh, you need to move here because you're Jewish. You need to immigrate. And I was like, no, thank you. I'm an all-American girl. So see you later. And it just took a few years. God started to change my heart. But it was a process for me. And I have a very different uh, story and experience. I moved from Canada. I was on a 10-day fast and God really grabbed a hold of my life and said, you're, you're going to be living in I'm sending you to Israel. I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And that was the last place I ever wanted to go. I, I, my answer was, God, I'm not one of those Israel-loving Christians. That just wasn't who I was. I Send me to Africa. Send me anywhere else in the world. Israel just wasn't on my radar. And I said, this is you. Then you have to make this happen. I don't even know where to begin. And that sent me on a journey. I ended up selling my company, taking a trip out to Israel as a teenager, and just backpacked across the country. And I knew when I visited Israel for the first time, I knew this is this is my home. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm called. So we have a very different story in our first experience in Israel, uh, coming to Israel. For me, it just, I felt so much purpose and uh, kind of picked up, bought a one-way ticket and moved to Israel after that. So Vanessa, somewhat lackluster first experience in Israel and Michael going, thinking I'm going to live here. You feel like God's calling you there, but maybe weren't sure of the process for that. So you come back, uh, Vanessa, you come back to the States, not so thrilled about uh, what everybody in Israel is advising you to do to move there. And Michael, you come back to North America, ready to move to Israel. What were family reactions? What did friends say? Are they supportive of these thoughts and sentiments? Are they saying you're crazy? What are you doing? Speak a little bit to that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I moved around a lot after college. And so the thought of potentially going at first, like I said, it was nowhere on my radar at all. Um, and then it actually took a few years and the same longing that I had felt um, when I got invited to study abroad was the same longing that I just started to wake up with these thoughts and missing Israel. And I just kept thinking, how do I miss a place that I didn't enjoy? This was just very, uh, very weird to me. Um, so then I just started taking trips and I am such a process person that the thought of moving there was nowhere on my radar. It was a, hey, I'm going to go for a week. I'm going to go for two weeks. And then I started meeting people and getting friends and joining a congregation. And all of a sudden I was going once a year. And so then I knew a lot of people there. And so my family was very supportive of it. But the thought of moving there was nowhere on my radar, nowhere on theirs. And I remember just talking to them about my process. And one, once I finally got to a point where I thought, I really feel strongly from the Lord that I am supposed to become an immigrant. I am supposed to move there. I actually fought the Lord on it. And I had did not want to say yes <laughs> to that. Um, but I really felt like I that was a, a step of obedience for me to go. And so when I expressed that to my family, then obviously they're going to want me to follow the call of God on my life. Um, but to be really honest with you, even to this day, it's still hard. It's still hard to live there and be away from my family. And they're very supportive, but we miss each other a lot. And I think you growing up Jewish, there was a natural side of, oh, I'm going to go spend some time study abroad in Israel. For my family, you know, growing up with very no Jewish identity, 
um, the idea of, oh, you're going to go to the Middle East? And isn't that where there's terrorist attacks? And like, you're really going to do that. And I kind of did the shock therapy with my, my parents and family. Like, I just said, hey, I'm going to end up in Israel one day. And you know, everyone's like, okay, yeah, of course, maybe. Uh, but then they see the process and they saw God open door after door. Uh, and now you, you can't deny that there's there's purpose to being there. So I would say that, that it's not an easy place to live. Sometimes when you come on tour, um, you have a different experience. I didn't want that experience. So my first trip, when I came, I said, I'm not, I don't want to go on a tour. I want to backpack across the country. I was 19 years old, staying in youth hostels, riding public transportation. I stayed two nights in a cave with a Bedouin in the Negev desert. You know, we like, didn't know each other at the time. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a very different experience than you have on most tours. But I, I wanted a little bit more of an authentic, live like a local uh, kind of experience. And literally, I didn't know what I was doing. I, if you've ever been to Israel, I was, I was like, oh, there's, there's Capernaum's here, and I'm on the Mount of Beatitudes. I'll just walk there. And I'm walking with headphones in, listening to Marty Getz worship music, and just, just hearing from the Lord. So again, we're very different types of people. But seeing God's hand, seeing uh, doors open for me originally to get a visa, and then later the ability to make Aliyah, which is a miraculous story in and of itself, uh, just confirmed, I think, to our family that there's purpose to us living here. Michael and I were actually the first people in our immediate family to have gone to Israel. And since then, our whole families have have come to visit. It's neat to be able to, to walk in that. That's awesome. You guys are the pioneers. So before you tell us about the process of making Aliyah, how, what was the final the step here, the straw that broke the, the resistance camel's back, we'll say, to I'm not just I want to move to Israel, I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure to, I'm doing this for both of you. Yeah, so I was um, actually working at a university that I had graduated from and um, wrestling with the Lord because I was, again, just feeling that that longing and feeling that pull. Um, and so I had been just going back and forth with the Lord about it. And I just um, remember actually uh, leading, I was leading a tour group of college students and so this was the first big moment. I was leading a, a group of college students. We were doing every other day serving within different ministries and every other day touring. And I was driving around. And it's just, it's a different thing when you are welcoming people into the country and you're hosting them. Like you have to own it a bit different. And I remember I was in a worship time in someone's home and I was praying over the map of Israel and just interceding. And in that moment, God just said, this is your home. And I just bawled my eyes out and I just thought not, not happy tears yeah I'm like I don't I don't know if I want this to be my home and um and and God just really kind of softly basically was leading me to it's we're gonna we're gonna work through this together and it was a few years later um actually almost three years later where I remember then I was back home and um, taking a walk around a lake and praying, God, what is this next season for me? I know there's a transition coming up, but I don't know what's next. And he said, it's time to go home. And again, bawling my eyes out. I don't want to go home. That's not my home. I have no desire to go um, and to leave my family and to leave what I am comfortable with and what I know. But it was so strong to the point where I felt like if I didn't go, it would be disobedience. I remember when I was on this trip and it was I was in Jerusalem, I was staying at Abraham Hostel uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, we heard this noise outside on a Friday night. It was Shabbat. 
and I run run outside with my camera. I have my big my, my big DSLR camera, and you, we saw all these ultra orthodox dressed up for Shabbat. You know, they got the big hats on, everything, right? They were outside of a, at an Ethiopian restaurant that was there at the time that was open on Shabbat. And they were just yelling, Shabbat, Shabbat. And they were protesting and they were going back and forth. And there were, there were kids screaming and they were protesting this restaurant that was open on the Sabbath. And I was, I was there filming the whole thing. And I just remember my heart uh, was just so grieved for, for the, the level of, you know, I, I had experienced Shabbat as a life-giving thing, but seeing seeing it lived out in such a legalistic, oppressive, even sometimes maybe a little bit abusive uh, way, just having a heart for the, you know, n- not saying I, I hate these people, but saying, man, I, I want to be here. And, and if there's something I can do, if I can be part in some small way of helping to reach these people, that's what my heart is. So that was the moment for me. Yeah, and it's interesting too, and we actually still wrestle with this, but the the mentality, we've talked about this so many times, the mentality for Michael to have gone, it, it, in some ways because of the way that he was raised, it was almost like even with his family and everything, he was a missionary in a way, like he was being sent to go you know, to Israel. And then for me, people always say, oh, you're a missionary to Israel. I'm like, I'm not a missionary to Israel. Like I, I, I grew up Jewish, like it's part of what it talks about in the Bible and God says that he is doing this. I had nothing to do with this. When he says he's going to do something, he says he's going to do something. And so anyways, we still sometimes kind of wrestle with it in regard to like, this is, I'm living there and I get to do ministry. And for Michael, it's like he went there to do ministry. So, And that's an interesting, you know, our audience may not understand that, the, and but we talk about it so often in this podcast and so many of the episodes, Carly, maybe every episode, the idea that Believing in Jesus for a Jewish person, somebody who grew up Jewish or has a Jewish heritage, isn't a departure from that identity. It's actually a fulfillment. And so the idea of a Jewish believer in Jesus moving to Israel, all of us, right, have a calling and and a unique ministry that God's given us. And those things are irrevocable, uh, Jewish or Gentile alike. And so we can express that calling in Israel, but Jewish believers moving to Israel aren't automatically going to be missionaries. They're going to be Jews living in the land that God promised the children of Israel because his promises are irrevocable and his promises are forever. He's the promise keeping God. So an important distinction our audience may not have considered, but if you haven't, consider it today. So what was the actual process in making Aliyah? Like what were the time frames, the, the milestones? What did that look like? Yeah, so for me, I really came to Israel as a Gentile. And we've talked about this as someone that was feeling a calling to engage with the Jewish people in Israel. Uh, but after moving to Israel very quickly, entered into ministry and, and co-founded this ministry called Firm, and now we get a chance to lead. But but outside of that, I found out that my grandmother who had passed away, had her Jewish heritage. Uh, it was hidden in our family. Only the women in the family knew. As far as I knew, I was as Italian as can be. I didn't even know there were Jews in Italy. Uh, now I've learned so much. There's an Italian synagogue right next to where we used to live, and and th- there's so much to learn. But I, I went on this trip with my father to meet family I had never talked to before or met before in Italy, dug up all of this evidence of my family's Jewish background. And I got advice from some lawyers. They said, you know, this is next to impossible that you'd actually be able to use this information to immigrate to Israel. It's so hidden. It's so, you know, you have a 2% chance of ever making Aliyah and immigrating. But so my process was very different. Usually you need to get a letter from a rabbi. That's kind of the hardest thing to get. 
And so I got some advice saying, hey, start attending a congregation in Canada that, you know, developing a relationship with that rabbi. And when, you know, he wants to get to know you a little bit more, tell him the story and see if he write you a letter. And I didn't want to go to, back to Canada, so I had my dad start going to a reform synagogue that I selected. Uh, he started attending for every couple of months and you know, gave some money in the, in the tzedakah. And uh, at some point, the rabbi had a conversation, said, hey, let's have a meeting. Uh, it was a reform rabbi, so he was having non-kosher sushi uh, in the meeting. But I told my dad, when, when the meeting was set, I flew over from Israel to Canada. We sat down with the rabbi, and I shared our story. And I said, look, uh, I, I'm already living in Israel. I want to immigrate. I want to make my life there. And supernaturally, we were able to get a rabbi's letter. Supernaturally, we were able to file that process in uh, Israel at the Ministry of Interior. And that's a tricky process. Uh, we didn't do it in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, because it's more religious, they're also more strict. They, they check to see if you are a missionary, if you are a believer, even if you're not a missionary, if you're a believer in Yeshua or in Jesus, so they'll scour the internet. They hire anti-missionary organizations to do research to find out if there's anything online. So we have to take everything off the internet and purge out all the databases and everything like that. But miraculously, uh, I was able to file and within six weeks, I uh, got my citizenship, which is a miraculous story. So again, I came to Israel as a Gentile, but I, I immigrated as someone with Jewish heritage and for me, the most significant part of that is that God brought me back to Israel as he promised before I even knew I was Jewish. And now that's so meaningful. So cool. The land and the people of Israel are forever connected. And I know that sounds maybe mystical or difficult to grasp for some of our audience, but I think it's a scriptural truth. It's a spiritual truth that God has knit the Jewish people we see in the word forever to a specific plot of land the size of New Jersey on the shores of the Mediterranean at the gateway to the Middle East. And Michael, it's awesome. You know, you had this, this tractor beam, right? Pulling you to a country that you couldn't explain why you loved. And then finally, everything became clear because it's the land of your forefathers, though you didn't know it when the story began. Super cool. We were actually dating at the time that he got his citizenship. And it was funny because I'm thinking, wait, I'm the one that grew up Jewish and you got your citizenship faster than I did. I had to go through a much harder process. And it was one of those moments of recognizing when, when God is doing something in your life and calling you to something, he is going to make a way um, in the right season at the right time. And um, for me, it's a, a very different, you know, it's a very different story because I knew that I was Jewish and I knew the process basically that you have to prove your Judaism. So for both of us, actually, our Judaism comes from our father's side. Um, and so that was also a new thing for me when I was first in Israel. Within the religious community, they would not consider us Jewish technically because technically it's through the mother, yet biblically it's through the father. So it's very interesting and depending on how you look at it. But our Judaism comes through our father. So with making Aliyah, which becoming a citizen, immigrating is for us, it was as a descendant of a Jew, um, not technically as Jewish, but as descendants of Jews. And so through that process, um, for us, it was a little bit different. And so I had to go find out all the information from my father's side of the family. And I scooped up everything that I possibly could. And I came with piles and piles of paperwork, information of where our family was buried, my dad's father's circumcision, everything, potential certificate, um, you know, just proving we are Jewish here. I am supposed to become a citizen. 
And, you know, mind you, this was also, I am walking out of obedience. God, you're telling me, I really feel led that you're leading me to do this. So I'm just going to do this out of obedience. And so I went to Israel with this, all this stuff. And also with a letter from a rabbi from my dad's synagogue that my grandparents actually helped start in New York. And my dad got bar mitzvah there. And um, so we got a letter from him and I submitted it. And they said basically that this letter isn't good enough because the rabbi isn't on our rabbi's list. And so you need to go find another rabbi to write your letter. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? I mean, it was just this confusing you're, thing. You're telling me there's a rabbi's list? They don't publish the list. Yeah, right. And I'm thinking, I don't, it's a secret list. I don't have another rabbi to go find. This is where our Jewish roots were continued through my family. My grandparents were there. My dad was there. Like, what else am I supposed to go find? And so long story short, it actually, we contacted the board of rabbis of New York and basically said, they're not accepting my letter. And this is our our family history. This rabbi knows of our family. And so um, the one of the people that was on the board of the rabbis basically said, I want to see if I'm on the list. So I'm going to write your letter myself. And so he was basically asking me, I remember he said, I just need to interview you. And so I sat with an interview with him and he was asking me all of these questions just about my Judaism, how I actually received uh, walk out my Judaism. I remember one of the questions he just kept asking just, well, are you involved in the Jewish community? What do you do? What synagogue do you go to? And I just remember, I, I really felt it was the Holy Spirit because if they would have found out or if he would have found out that I was a believer in Jesus and Yeshua, he would not have written my letter. And I remember just feeling like the Holy Spirit just really strongly just I, I basically responded. I said, actually, they're not going to really care whether all these questions about me and my Judaism, they only care about my father and they only care. And he grew up at this synagogue. So you're really, you're writing a letter based on all of that. And it really doesn't matter about all this. And yeah. immediately, immediately he goes, okay, great. I'll put your letter in the mail tomorrow. And that was it. And that was actually though a six month process for me in Israel. And I thought it was going to be a month to two month process for me. So by that time, six months later, I had had a couple letters denied. All of my paperwork had been expired um, because you have to get background checks and all of these different things that you have to gather and you have to get apostilles, which is official documentation that they can use internationally. And so all of that by then had expired. I had an internship that also that time was up. And so I'm out of money. I was really homesick. I was having a really hard time. I was so frustrated with the bureaucracy of Israel and this whole proving my Judaism. And at some point I just said, I'm done. I didn't want this in the first place. God, you were the one who said to do this. And if you're not making it happen, I'm, I'm done and I'm going home. And literally I just put it back on God. Like you're the one that wanted this. If you want this to happen, I'm done and I'm leaving. And so you have to make it happen if you want anything to change. Literally two days later, I got a call after submitting the letter and everything. Two days later, I got a call. You are uh, received and you have your citizenship. You are now officially an Israeli citizen. And you got and you got your citizenship two days before you flew out of the and country. Two, I was like, I'm still so exhausted emotionally with this process and mentally and everything. I just needed a break. So two days later, I got back on a plane to go back to America um, to breathe it out. And uh, so it was a very, very heart wrenching process. 
sure. But praise God, one that ended successfully and the desire in both of your hearts to live in Israel was fulfilled. And what I want to point out for our audience here is is two things that maybe our listeners are saying, wait a minute, I'm not following the details of the story here. Israel is a Jewish state. I mean, those who have heard Bibi Netanyahu when he was prime minister, he's no longer, but when he was, he would always emphasize that in his deep voice to protect the Jewish state, you know, when he'd speak before the, the UN. And, and so Israel's interest in receiving new immigrants is to really make sure to the best of their ability that people either are Jewish or have, as you said, a Jewish heritage, a Jewish parent or grandparent. So that explains a lot of the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the checking and the interviews that our audience may say, why is this so difficult? Why don't they just sign the form? You said you're Jewish. What's the issue? Well, that's the issue. But the second issue is, again, our audience, if you've heard other episodes, you understand this, but maybe this is new for some of you, is this idea that for the mainline Jewish community to believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as your personal savior, isn't seen as a fulfillment of a Jewish identity. It's seen as a departure from Jewish identity, Jewish ethnicity, Jewish heritage, the Jewish faith or religious system. And so Michael and and Vanessa in their in their own stories had to handle that issue of faith in Jesus very carefully. And it sounds like pray a lot and trust the providence of God who was calling them to Israel to work that out. So the Jewish state that unfortunately right now, and you know, if you're listening and you're a person of prayer, pray for a change in this in the years to come, is is generally resistant toward the idea of Jewish believers in Jesus uh, immigrating and becoming citizens. So if that's new information for you, write to us. We'd love to share more details on that, but that's part of the context. We just want our listeners to understand before we go on here and talk about life in Israel. That's, that's really good, Ezra. And it's important to understand, like even the idea of the name Aliyah, the idea of ascending, it's this spiritual idea. I, I was dating Vanessa at the time. I could have gotten citizenship through a five-year family reunification process once we were married. But there's something about actually that process of making Aliyah. It's not just a technical immigration process. And even the reason Israel put into law two years after the founding of the state of Israel, this law of return, they put the same requirements that Hitler had in the Holocaust, if you had a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent, two generations. And that's what they said. If, even if you're not Jewish, if you have a Jewish parent or grandparent, you have a right to be able to return. So, Yeah, and unfortunately, just like you're saying, Ezra, not everyone is successful in their process. There are many people who apply and go through this heart-wrenching process. And at the end, if you know, especially for belie- the believing community, if they find out that they believe in Jesus and Yeshua, then they are denied citizenship because they the state of Israel believes that you know, even though it's a democratic state, you know, they, like you said, believe that, that by believing in Yeshua, you are walking away from your Judaism, which is not possible but um so pray for there to be a change like you said because we want the justice of being able to rightfully be able to have everyone who has the jewish heritage be able to come home amen so for the only gentile in the room here if you become a citizen and then they find out later that you believe in jesus like can they take away your citizenship so so there the typical answer is it's very hard once you receive citizenship. Yeah. But technically, if you made if you immigrated under false pretense, so if you if you claimed that your mother was Jewish and they find out later that she was not Jewish, they can revoke your citizenship under that false pretense. Now, if you, if you didn't lie about anything, 
but they find out you're a believer. There has been some talk about maybe there's three years or five years after you get your citizenship or maybe they can try to revoke it. I don't know that that's ever happened successfully. I know that they have tried that. We have some friends, some close friends, that they're trying right now to revoke their citizenship because they, they, they see what they do as, as missionary work um, in Israel. But again, uh, it's much harder, and that's why we're even on this podcast and we're talking as openly as we can because we're, because we're citizens. If we were both on visas, it would be much more challenging to be able to talk about any sort of work doing preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel with, right. with Jewish people because that, that's a lot more controversial. But outside of them potentially, you know, whether or not it's true or not that they can take away your citizenship, they can make your life horrible, you know, in regard to the process that you go through of actually uh, living there and getting ingrained within the culture and learning Hebrew and all of these things. You get a, a, a load of benefits when you do become a citizen and they can pull back all of those. And yeah. so then you're just kind of on your own to figure out a whole new life in a whole new country. Um, and so there are a lot of organizations that help the believing community because if they do find out afterwards, then all of your benefits are yeah. frozen. That's true. Um, so Because when you make all the other benefits, like you can import uh, a shipping crate tax-free, you have certain benefits when buying a new vehicle, you have certain free Hebrew lessons. So actually we have a good friend of ours who he's born to an Israeli citizen, he's Israeli, but he moved to Israel with his family and with his three kids. And because they found out where he lives, because they found out that he lives in a messianic community, they said, well, we, you do not have the right to uh, return. Your family does not get citizenship. You're denied all of your benefits that they were counting on. And we make your process very, very difficult for your family over the next five years to actually get status. So he's paying taxes for his job, et cetera, et cetera. And he's not getting any medical insurance for his family. Th things like that that just make it very, very difficult. Uh, and now they had another child born in Israel. That child's Israeli. He's Israeli, but his wife and other three kids are not Israeli. So it's, it's just so it's so com confusing and complicated. Part of the the challenge, and it's an emotional struggle as well. Saying, "Wow, I, you know, my, my grandparents survived the Holocaust, and I have this Jewish identity. I feel this affinity for my people, and yet my people don't want me. They reject me, and to my face, they'd say, you're not even really one of us.' And that's." that's that's an emotional identity challenge that a lot of people have. Right. And our, our purpose here, before before Carly asks you a bit about, about, you know, the experience of living in Israel, our purpose isn't to vilify Israel as the Jewish state. Our purpose isn't to discourage people who are listening, who have a Jewish heritage, who maybe have thought once, thought twice, think a lot about uh, immigrating to the state of Israel. But as you said, Michael, confusing and complicated. And again, just underscoring that the issue of Jesus as much as the Jewish community would attempt to sideline the issue, it is very much a hot button and a central issue. And if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then you believe he's the fulfillment of everything God called Abraham out of Ur to be and to do and, and to fulfill. He, he's the Messiah. He's the one who makes it possible for Israel to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If you don't believe that and you reject his Messiahship, then you reject all those who receive him. And so it's a complicated thing, as we said, you know, without, without going further down that road, we just want our listeners, if you have a Jewish heritage, it's complicated. You probably know it's complicated if you have a Jewish heritage. If you're a Christian listening, just appreciate that the the Jewish believing community in Israel and in North America struggles to walk a fine line of identity. We believe it's a God ordained line and he's in it, but it's a difficult road. So 
But but praise God, you guys are there now, and you made it. And we're going to just talk a little bit about life in Israel as you've experienced it as millennials from a North American background. So as you both explained your backgrounds, you know, Vanessa, you're from the United States. Michael, you're from Canada, both first world countries. Same with Israel. And English is one of the official languages of Israel. So our audience might be asking, how different is it really from North America to Israel? And what were some of the biggest surprises you experienced from living there? This is a great question because Israel, especially if you look at the technology and the startup nation, a lot of aspects of our society are very first world. But then you actually look at the makeup of our country, 9.3 million citizens right now, and 70% of, of our citizens are either immigrants or they're the children or grandchildren of immigrants. So we're, we're a nation of immigrants. And you got to ask yourself, where do these immigrants come from? Well, a million of the immigrants came from the former Soviet Union, came from communist, you know, totalitarian regimes. And you have others that have immigrated from North Africa, whether Morocco or from Iran or from Iraq or some, you have some from Europe. So you have really this, this melting pot of a, of a society that has all these different backgrounds and it's reflected, you have, you have Jews from Ethiopia and it's, it's reflected in our culture. So when we say first world, there are, you would have no problem going to Israel and getting a really nice meal, a nice clean glass of water, an apartment with electricity. You might pay for it, but, <laughs> but, but you, you might have no problem getting all of that. But in the mindset, in the way that our, uh, our, our parliamentary system and a lot of our government offices are set up, there's a lot of bureaucracy that makes it very challenging, especially for someone from a first world. In fact, we were just having lunch um, with one of our neighbors and he immigrated, he and his family immigrated from Russia. And I asked him, I said, is Israel more organized than Russia or less organized? And he said, actually, Israel like, is way more organized, way easier to understand. And I said, how, how funny the difference. Like for us coming from a first world background, it's so hard to get certain things done in Israel. You go to a bank and you think, I want to open a bank account. I'm your customer. You should try to win me over, not try to talk me out of getting a bank account and make it miserable and frustrating to actually open an account. And and so I think so, a lot of the differences is that idea of customer service, that idea There's of... There's no concept of customer service yeah. in Israel. <laughs> there was one time one of the guys on our staff went to go get something printed and he bought a USB stick uh, to to someone at a, at a printing shop. We were paying them to print something and they needed to redesign some graphic or change a font or something. And the designer on staff at the print shop looked at him and said, why should I work hard for you? And he's like, because I'm your customer. I'm, <laughs> I'm paying you to do it. Anyway, so that, that represents some of the, the hardness. And I think that, that is a challenge for people. If you just come on a tour and you're just staying in really nice hotels, I mean, that's not what real life looks like. Going to our, the National Insurance Office, or going to the Ministry of Interior and trying to navigate multiple languages and multiple mindsets and all different backgrounds that are brought in and trying to navigate a government, uh, especially being an immigrant, it's not easy. Yeah, and I think that everybody, you know, like he's talking about, everybody comes from somewhere different. Everybody's there because of a different reason. Yeah. Like some people are there because their life was in danger yeah. somewhere else. And they are there for safety. They are there because they were fighting. This whole nation is created out of fighting for freedom, fighting for a place to call home. And so whether you're there and it's almost a sacrifice, you know, based on where you came from or it's your 
your saving grace that you're there to, you know, versus where you lived in your family from wherever they were from. Everybody there is basically this group of enmeshed people fighting for a, a right to be at peace and to live in a place where they're not bothered and they're allowed to be who they are. And, you know, that when you when you actually put that into perspective, the honorary that you get from people, the the standoffish, the hard shell that you get from people, every you know, most of Israel is walking through this post-traumatic stress of fighting you live in a place of of without war. Yeah. And so it's as frustrating as so many things are at the end of the day, you just, you know, for, for me, I just have to ask God for extra grace to remember there's a reason that people are the, the way that they are and that they need to be freed with the love of Yeshua. But at the same time, we're, you know, also thinking, how can we help people to be able to have better customer service? <laughs> <laughs> to let me open my bank account. Right, exactly. You know, and it's this weird thing of like, people are so rough around the edges, yet at the same time, if any conflict happens, there's also this warm family, like everybody sticks together kind of a thing. So it's this weird dichotomy that you deal with on an emotional level. So you mentioned that, you know, you really feel like, Vanessa, that your home is in Florida, and you sometimes experience this homesickness still. How do you guys balance that or work within that, knowing that you feel like you're being obedient unto the Lord to be in Israel while also being homesick? I think, you know, our our audience, whether they're in Israel or not, everyone has that where they feel like, you know, maybe I'm being obedient to something, but I still have a longing for something else. So kind of speak to that. Yeah, I think for some of for us, when we got married, an important thing for us was, important thing for me at the time was to be married in Israel. Because we said, hey, this is where God's calling us to. This is our future. This is our future community. And even if it doesn't quite feel like home yet, this is where we're making our home to be. So we'll always have the country of origin. We'll always have the place that we came from. And there's certain comforts and luxuries that it's always going to feel familiar. But getting married in Israel, uh, now having our son being born as a native-born Israeli, I think those are the things that cement for us that that Israel is our home. Even though there are times where you look back and you you miss certain um, comforts and conveniences and uh, certain things about home. Uh, home. Yeah, it, it's we're Michael and I are very different, you know, especially in regard to this. And I think I still struggle, you know, with that reality of, of homesickness and family being away. And even especially now having a son who has to FaceTime to be with family. And, you know, so I don't know, I think honestly, just being intentional about relationship is important. But at the same time, I think overall in life, we, I feel like we just are constantly grieving loss. And we're constantly grieving this process of I desire this and it conflicts with something else that I desire. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I want to be obedient to the Lord. And at the end of the day, I want to walk in what he has for me. And that is still hard to this day. And so as much as I am 100% confident to be there, it is still a very sad reality for me a lot of times. And, and I'm pretty sure there's not a goodbye that happens without tears um, when I'm with my family. Sure. Thank God for FaceTime because <laughs> yes. that existed. I was actually, as you were talking about your wedding, I was just remembering how I had a watch party 
And that's right. No. And even having the wedding in Israel, we had this huge argument about it thinking, I'm like, I can't get married there. What about all my other friends and family? Like they can't, they're not all going to fly there. And, but it was a choice of, no, this is, this is a decision that we're making to establish. This is going to be our future home and we're going to be there. But, you know, the reality is people there have become like family to us. And that has been a beautiful part of the process as well. We have an incredible community there that we love and we feel so supported with, um, you know, and for us, unlike most people, for us, we don't have any other family members there. So when people are getting together for holidays or things like that, we're just kind of like, Okay, which family are we going to join with this time? And But God's really led us uh, to incredible people, and so we're grateful for that. Awesome. And you guys really are first-generation immigrants. You know, when we say that term, I think of, you know, middle school history class, right? The immigrants came over, many of whom, my, my you know, great-grandparents, namely, among millions of others from the old world Jewish communities, but they made their way and they immigrated, in, you know, and they integrated into American society or Canadian society, and now here they are. But first-generation immigrant status is still a thing in every generation, including for you guys as millennials, your, your first generation immigrants going through the same, the trauma of separation, the longing for the old country, which in our case is, you know, Canada and America, but, but it's hard. It's, it's a very real experience for, for, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million Israelis who themselves are first generation immigrants. So final question for you guys, you're, you're Jewish believers in Jesus. And so you're part of what's called the Messianic Jewish community that exists around the world, wherever there's a Jewish community, but of course, inclusive of Israel as well, and specifically in the Jerusalem area. So you're called there, your calling, your ministerial expression is happening in Israel. What do you guys see as the future of the Messianic Jewish community in Israel, whether that's five years out, 10 years out, between now and you know when we believe Jesus comes back to rule and reign from Jerusalem? What's the outlook? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. And I think to look forward, we kind of have to look back. And you know, over the last 70 years, the Messianic community in Israel has grown from 23 believers, literally two families that existed after the British mandate of Palestine and they exited and then Israel became a nation to today, what some would say is 30,000 or more. Uh, we don't know what that what that's like. Um, and I, I think today, when you ask the question, what do I see for the future? I see, um, I, I see us as a believing body starting to lead in new aspects and areas of society. I see a level of boldness in uh, our generation in Israel, uh, standing on the shoulders of our parents and our grandparents' generation that really were the pioneers that really said, hey, we're going to exist and we're going to be a relevant part of society. And I think today people aren't debating whether Messianic Jews are a part of society in Israel. They may, they may still not like us. They may still not prefer us or feel comfortable, but there's an acknowledgement. There's articles in the newspaper acknowledging who Messianic Jews are. They're, they're, they're Messianic believers in there they're here in the land they're here to stay i think that that's just such such a such a uh, a picture of what it's like in israel if you could just if you could just remain for a certain amount of time they'll try to get you out at first but once they realize you're not going anywhere they'll they'll, they'll learn to accept you and i hope we can go from acceptance to leading to making an impact to finding areas in society where our people that are not believers 
are leading, whether that's entrepreneurials and startups or or social causes and 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 areas that are making an impact on society. How great would it be to see believers enter into areas of influence? And and even this week, I heard a story: a messianic uh, soldier in the IDF got publicly um, affirmed and awarded for his exemplary service. And that this is something. 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, would not have happened that they would, they would publicly be awarding and acknowledging a messianic officer in the IDF. And so I just think that we're going to see more and more of that where we don't have to shy back. We don't have to be afraid that we believe in Yeshua. In fact, we can actually be bold and confident and know that we're adding value to our people and our society. Yeah. And with that question, you know, the one word that I think about is hope. I, I have hope for the Messianic Jewish community in Israel and around the world. And I feel like our generation has different opportunities and we're a lot more comfortable in our own skin with it, I think at this point, um, to where, like Michael said, aside from the government, you know, most people just are fine with us being believers, you know, our neighbors or whatever, like we, we don't go and broadcast it on our balcony, but you know, we're, we're nice. We're, <laughs> we love for us. It's a matter of, Hey, how do we love each person we come in contact with? And, and you know, just allow, just allow God to be God and to do what he does. And so the opportunities to really share and walk out and be the hands and feet of Jesus are so much stronger, I think, um, today in, in a lot more of a freeing way. So I'm very hopeful. Hope, leadership, and impact. Those are some pretty exciting things to shoot for. And we're believing God, right? That if we really believe, which we do, all of us, the Carly representing the Gentile Christian community and the other three of us on today's episode representing the Messianic Jewish community, if we really believe that all the promises of God are yes in Yeshua, in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, then we should absolutely believe that those in the Jewish community calling upon his name, filled with his spirit, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth and to our own Jewish people have uh, a hopeful, a bright future ahead and uh, that God would use us to make a tremendous impact in Israel and in the nations. So it's exciting times. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Michael and Vanessa Mistretta for sharing your story. And uh, I've learned I've learned a lot. I know our audience has as well. Uh, thanks for being vulnerable with us about the ups and downs, the hard lessons learned and the awesome things the Lord did in and through you guys in uh, becoming citizens of, of the land and the state of Israel. This has been a full episode and uh, we encourage you to check out Others Like It wherever you access your podcast content or directly from our website at a Jew and a Gentile org. And I want to invite you again to stand with some hurting Jewish communities, your investment in what we're doing through partner ministries around the world in Israel as well as in Ethiopia, Zimbabwe and other places where scattered Jewish communities live can make a tremendous impact and as a thank you for that investment we want to send you some Ethiopian coffee from our very own Lost Tribes Coffee Company. If you want to enter into a drawing to win some free Lost Tribes coffee here's what you do. Text JG to 474747. Again, JG to 474747. And all the details about becoming more engaged with us through this podcast and our partner ministries are online at Jew and a Gentile Discuss.org. So tune in for more episodes and thank you so much for joining us today. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.